Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a gracious God you are. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together here this fine morning to sing praises to your name, to worship you in spirit and truth, to read from your word, to hear from your word, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints, Lord, to um, be able to have the opportunity to, to give to you and to serve you. And Lord, I do pray, I pray for this morning our time in your word that it would be certainly profitable for us. It would bring glory to your name that you would give us those eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand, Father. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' glorious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We live in a day and age where some in the world would like to change history. I'm not saying that there aren't things, historically speaking, that many of us regret and wished had never happened, such as wars, brutal dictatorial governments and leaders, poverty, slavery, the oppression and discrimination of of people, people groups. But there are also those who don't like certain aspects of history, and so they they literally want to change the history books. They are called revisionists. Some are even called historical negationists. These are people who use inappropriate methods, such as even forged documents or implausible distrust of genuine documents, Attributing false conclusions to books and sources, manipulating statistical data, and even deliberately mistranslating texts. This type of historical revisionism can present a a reinterpretation of the moral meaning of the historical record. Negationists use the term revisionism to portray their efforts as legitimate historical inquiry. This is especially the case when revisionism relates to, for instance, a denial of something like the Holocaust. Vladimir Putin has sought to change history to justify his invasion of Ukraine by falsely claiming that modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia. He called the sovereign nation quote, historically Russian land, end quote. In truth, the movement for an independent Ukraine predates the Soviet Union by some hundred years. Now something else along these lines is when people believe a document is to be viewed as living or fluid, meaning the interpretation should change with the times. We see this with our U.S. Constitution, There are those who believe that the Constitution should be interpreted differently depending on current society and circumstances of that society. When I was putting this together, I thought, well, yeah, and the same could be true of the Bible. Trying to reinterpret it. The problem is, is who, who would get to make the rules of interpretation? One last category I would mention to you is our current cancel culture, which refers to a cultural phenomenon in which some who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner are ostracized, boycotted, or shunned. 
This shunning may extend to social or professional circles, whether on social media or in person, with most high-profile incidences involving celebrities. Those subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. Without going into details, Google's recently unveiled AI called Gemini, just unveiled last week even, very obviously operates with extreme biases which seek both to change history and even cancel whole people groups. Now, I'm not telling you all of this to get your feathers up and get you all riled up here, but rather to use as examples of the world that we live in and how it operates. There are some who are seeking to change history. There are some who continue to want to cancel out anyone that doesn't subscribe to their particular worldview, philosophy of life, or way of thinking. And guess who this includes? Jesus. Jesus. But this is nothing new. I mean, Jesus... uh, Jesus of the Bible has been on the chopping block for some 2,000 years. People have tried to discredit him. They've tried to explain him away, deny he even existed, and just get rid of him altogether. But we are also in a day and age where Christian churches and supposed followers of Jesus are trying to water him down and change his message so it's just more more palatable to the masses and this is why what john the baptist shares in our text today about jesus is so vitally important because john is going to give us five immutable which means unchanging truths about jesus that friends you and i need to heed we need to know we need to stand on and never forget them because frankly christianity depends on them the gospel of jesus depends on them people's salvation depend on them now with that Please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, where we will continue in verse 29. We'll look at verses 29 to 34 this morning. Just by way of review, two weeks ago, The defense's star witness, John the Baptist, was called to the stand by the prosecution, which turned out to be this group of priests and Levites and Pharisees, presumably sent by the Sanhedrin, that's the the Jewish council there in Jerusalem. And John the Baptist gave testimony answering two basic questions. They wanted to know, who are you and why are you baptizing? And, And we answered those. The text answered those. Now, something else we need to understand about both last week, or excuse me, the week before last um, and this week's text is a timeline. So for verses 19 to 34, it's important that we understand what has happened at this point already. 
And what has happened is this. John has already been baptizing people up to this point. He's even had a run-in with the Jewish authorities, calling them a brood of vipers. Jesus has already shown up and uh, been baptized by John, after which heaven opened up. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended uh, upon Jesus, and the voice of God came from the heavens and spoke so all could hear. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. After that, Jesus was then led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. This is when John the Baptist moved to Bethany, and those Jewish authorities started showing up wanting information, going back to verse 19. All of that has already happened at this point in our text. And in our text this morning, the Baptist is is still giving testimony as to who this Jesus is, but now it's directed at the public. At first it was directed at the Jewish leaders, now it's going out to everybody that was there. And and frankly, we're we're not 100% sure if the delegation of Jewish leaders are still there with them. It's entirely possible they are. But the text tells us this is the next day after having that confrontation with the leaders. Maybe they went back to Jerusalem. Who knows? If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Verses 29 to 34. Verse 29, the next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. You may be seated. This is the word of God. The first immutable truth of Jesus is that he is identified as the Lamb of God. We see this back in verse 29. The next day he, meaning the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, in other words, look, observe, consider the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the idea of a lamb sacrifice would have been very familiar to the Jewish people, especially the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. As a lamb who takes away sin, sin can only be atoned for by the life and blood of an animal sacrificed on the sinner's behalf. Turn to, keep your bookmark there, but turn to Leviticus chapter 5. Yeah, we've all been in Leviticus lately, haven't we? With our Bible reading program. Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 5. And while you're turning to there, I'm going to read you one other verse from Leviticus 17.11, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement. Atonement means to cover, 
means to pacify, make propitiation for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Okay, now we're, we're going to look at Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 5. So it shall be, when he becomes guilty in one of these, and Moses is just referring back to some different sins that he previously mentioned, when somebody would become guilty of one of these sins, <clears throat> that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Verse 6, he shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Look at verse 8. He shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering, and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second half, uh, the second he shall then prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance, so the priest shall make atonement (coughs) on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. And of course, we know from places like the book of Hebrews that this is all based on the future merits of Christ and the blood that he would shed on the cross. You might remember some of this lamb language back in Isaiah 53 and verse 7 and how Isaiah described the suffering servant saying he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers so he did not open his mouth and then in Isaiah 53:10 but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering back to our text John chapter 1 While Israel was looking for a conquering king, a warring general, a political powerhouse, what God sent them was a lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And whereas the people of Israel, friends, had to provide for their own sacrifice for the atonement of sin... God now supplies the Lamb Himself in the form of His Son. And this Son would again take away the sin of the world. Now, we have to say what this is not saying here. What this is not saying is that because Jesus would go to the cross as the sacrifice for the sin of the world, that all people everywhere throughout time would therefore be forgiven of their sin. No doubt the sacrifice of Christ is enough to have the sin of any and all people removed and for any and all people to be justified. But scripture is clear. This will only be done for those who repent and believe in the gospel. It will only be efficacious, meaning having the power to produce a desired effect for those who place their faith in Christ. 
And remember what we learned uh, back in verse 9 of John 1 about the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And, and we learned that this refers to all human beings without distinction. Men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation have the opportunity to be enlightened, though not without exception. In other words, as we saw in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 1, some did not receive Jesus, rather they rejected him. And those that did receive him and believe on his name to them, he gave the right to be called children of God, those who were born of God, those who were born again. Well, same thing here in verse 29. Every human being without distinction, male or female, from every tribe, tongue, and nation can have their sins taken away. However, only those who will receive Jesus, believing in his name, and born of God, will actually have their sins removed. As David writes in Psalm 103, verses 12 to 13, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. That's another way to put it. Now what we don't want to miss here. In our text is that the Baptist is, is making something very clear about Jesus. Again, that Jesus didn't come to be king over Israel in some sort of physical way. He didn't come to free up an oppressed Israel. He didn't lead Israel or come to lead Israel as the head of state or to make Israel a leader of nations. He came to take away their sins and to do so as a sacrifice unto death. And obviously this was not yet well understood by the people who heard the Baptist there that day. But we should. We should understand this truth. In fact, we should understand this truth very fully and completely. This is, this is one of those truths that, frankly, it, man, it bothers people. This truth of Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world bothers people because, you see, if they accept the fact that Jesus takes away sins, then, well, that means they have to admit what? They're a sinner. Exactly. And if they admit they're a sinner, well, then that has to mean that they acknowledge their sins are against their creator God. And if they admit that God created them, they'd also have to admit that then it's his perfect standard that is the standard. In other words, he gets to make the rules. And you see, that's the deal breaker for them, isn't it? That he gets to make the rules, not them. Because we want to make the rules for ourselves. Friends, it is, it's, it's time to get real here, right? I mean, what about you? What about you? Do you believe that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who came to die in your place so that you could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life instead of eternal death and punishment? Who is Jesus to you? Is he indeed the sacrificial lamb 
of God. Secondly, the second immutable truth that we see here in this text is that he is of higher rank. Jesus is of higher rank. Verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And of course, you might be thinking, well, didn't I hear that somewhere? Yes, back in verse 15. Verse 15 of chapter 1. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And so here the Baptist is simply verifying that this Jesus who was there approaching him on that day in verse 29 is indeed the same person that he was referring to back in verse 15. And back in verse 15, we learn that though the Baptist was on the scene first, He was there, you know, uh, doing ministry prior to Jesus showing up for his uh, initiation into ministry. He is not the one whom the people should be looking for. The Baptist is like, no, 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 you shouldn't be looking for me. You need to be looking for the one who comes after me who has a higher rank than I. And this is in line with prophecy that the Baptist would, of course, be the forerunner to the Messiah, that he would come to prepare people for the coming of Christ. In fact, this phrase, has a higher rank than I, it's not so much we learned about authority, but according to the the Greek wording there, it's about time. A better translation may even be, has come before me. And so while the Baptist's earthly ministry preceded Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has preceded the Baptist because he existed before him, eternally speaking. And and yes, it is also true that because of Jesus' pre-existence eternally with the Father, yes, he would also be of higher rank than the Baptist in authority the baptist wanted people to be sure that he was not the one they should be focused on rather they should be focused on this jesus the word who was with god before time began and who is god now why is this important for us today Because it helps demonstrate that Jesus was not some created being. That God the Father created Jesus. Rather, he eternally coexisted with God, with the Holy Spirit, as God. And this is important because only God has the authority to take away sins. Going back to the Lamb of God. The only only God can live the righteous life that that we can't but should have. Only God can raise the dead and grant eternal life. This is why Jesus' pre-existence with the Father is important for us. Thirdly, thirdly, the text tells us that he was then manifested to Israel. Third immutable truth, he had to be manifested to Israel. Verses 31 and 32 where John the Baptist says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. 
Jesus. So, all right, what's the, what's the deal then with this being manifested to Israel? At some point, Jesus, as the Messiah, would need to be made known to the people. He would need to be revealed to the people. They would need to be told or shown uh, who or what this Jesus is. That he indeed is the Messiah. And the Baptist says that in order for this to happen, he came baptizing in water. In other words, the Baptist had a mission. He had certain marching orders that came directly from God as to what he was to do and how this was going to happen that Jesus would be manifested to Israel. To better understand this, let's, let's back up our narrative just a little bit. Uh, to be clear as to what the Baptist mission was. Yes, it had to do with baptizing, of course. But in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, it tells us, And he came into all the district around the Jordan. This is speaking of the Baptist. He came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This was the mission and purpose of the baptism. Excuse me, the Baptist. Matthew 3, 7 to 8 is a, another example of the Baptist warning the Pharisees and Sadducees. When, when I mentioned, he said, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So he was calling people to repentance. He's calling for them to bear fruit, good fruit. The Baptist was quite clear on his mission. He knew who he was. He knew the the ministry that God had sent him to do, preparing people for the Messiah by calling them to repent of their sins, be baptized, which is, of course, a, a symbol of cleansing from their sin. And all of this ministry of John the Baptist was in preparation for the Messiah to be manifested, revealed to Israel. That was the purpose and point, John's mission. Now, the Baptist also says in our, in our text there that I did not recognize him, he says. Now, this is not to say that he didn't know who Jesus was. The fact that they were related because their moms, uh, Elizabeth and Mary, were related, well, we might imagine that maybe they had some interactions <clears throat> even over the years. Especially now if they're in that 30-year-old range. And what the Baptist is saying is that when Jesus showed up, he didn't yet understand that John the Baptist was the Messiah. That's what he's getting at. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13. And while you do that, let me tell you that Our text this morning is not the first interaction that the Baptist and Jesus had with each other here as adults. For that, we need to look at this text here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, which says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now, if you're like me, 
you probably are thinking already or want to know or have wanted to know at some point, yeah, about that. Why did sinless, perfectly righteous Jesus need to get baptized? John was wondering the same thing. You can look at verse 14. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. <clears throat> so it would seem that with this appearance of Jesus to the Baptist, the Baptist had a sense as to who Jesus really was, indicated by his, his reticence to baptize the sinless Messiah, and Jesus, of course, understood his apprehension and responds that it would be okay this time in order to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this was a, a special, it was a unique situation, whereas Jesus needed to be manifested to Israel. It was time to reveal him to Israel as the Messiah. They needed to see this clearly about Jesus. And so this is God's all-righteous plan as to how he chose to do it by having John publicly baptize Jesus. It's possible, too, that there are other ways that Jesus' baptism would fulfill all righteousness. Maybe Jesus was showing himself to be an example of obedience. Maybe he was demonstrating that he identified with sinners, though he was not one himself. <clears throat> Maybe this was a prefiguring of what would come his way by his death, burial, and resurrection, which believers' baptism now demonstrates. But, friends, because we are studying the Gospel of John and not the Gospel of Matthew, that's all the time we're going to spend on it. We need to move on. We need to move on to verse 16 of Matthew 3, where it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of god descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold a voice out of the heavens said this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased <laughs> i mean to be there right and hear that must have been truly extraordinary and this, too, is a tremendous part of Scripture. Unfortunately, we will not spend much time with this morning except to say this is what the Baptist was talking about when we read in our text in verse 32, excuse me, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. Because, friends, now we understand the point of this. this the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove because this is god's confirmation to john the baptist that jesus this man before him is indeed the messiah he is the very son of god so keep a bookmark there in uh, matthew 3 because we're going to come back to matthew 3 so put a little bookmark there <clears throat> just to summarize this this little chunk that we've just had here so John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, until Jesus showed up, got baptized by John, followed by the heavens opening, Holy Spirit coming down, remaining on Jesus, 
And the heavens open, uh, excuse me, and then the voice of God declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is why John can then say what he did in verses 31 to 32. Now, of course, this side of the cross, we need to not only understand that Jesus needed to be manifested to Israel, but of course, he needed to be manifested, made known, revealed to the Gentiles as well, which means all of us, right? All of us. He needs to be made known here in 2024. He needs to be made known from Calvary Bible Church. He needs to be made known by you, your mouth, to the people that you know, the people in your neck of the woods, the people that would, would, would have ears to hear. So that they can hear, they can repent, and they can believe in the eternally existing Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Romans 10 and verse 13, Paul says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Guess what, friends? I'm not just the preacher, you all are the preachers. That's how they hear. They hear from your mouth to their ears. This leads us to the fourth immutable truth of Jesus that he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We see this now back in in John chapter 1 verse 33. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, Pause there. Who do you suppose that is? This person who said something to the Baptist. Yes, it's God the Father. He was the one who had the plan for the Baptist all laid out. And when did God tell him this? Uh, We don't know. Scripture doesn't doesn't specifically tell us. We might imagine it was just before the the Baptist made his way out of the wilderness to show up there in the Jordan River um, area to begin his ministry. But in any case, what did the Father say to him? he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining that word remaining it's it's a present active which means ongoing the spirit permanently remained on jesus upon him this is the one who baptizes in the holy spirit and, and just to tell you, grammatically speaking, that can be in the Holy Spirit, it can be with the Holy Spirit, it can be by the Holy Spirit. Now, when the other Gospels mention the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like or as a dove, again, we now know this is because there needed to be some kind of visible representation of the Holy Spirit lighting upon Jesus so that John the Baptist would know that this is the one. This is the the coming one. This is the Messiah. This is the one who who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In addition, the Holy Spirit would remain on Jesus in in a permanent way because unlike some before him where they... They had the Spirit for a time and then the Spirit was removed. You might think of Saul even. Jesus, though, would never displease his Father. And so the Spirit would permanently remain on him. Furthermore, God affirms another truth that the Baptist already knew, that the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how did he already 
know that. And what, what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus will do? <clears throat> Turn again to Matthew chapter 3. So that's where I asked you to bookmark that. Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> in verse 11. All three Gospels mention this baptism of the Holy Spirit, but here in Matthew, the Baptist is speaking to the crowds that were coming to him. Look at verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. Of course, friends, let me interject here that he is referring to the Messiah, who he later finds out is Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You go, oh, that's kind of interesting. He's not going to just baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's also going to baptize with fire. Turn to John chapter 3. I can't remember if we're coming back to Matthew. Maybe keep your bookmark there again. John chapter 3. To understand Jesus baptizing in the Holy Spirit, we, we have this amazing encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus where Jesus tells him in order to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus must be what? Born again. To which Nicodemus replies, look at chapter 3, verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Well, friends, this, this then befuddles Nicodemus, and he asked this, look down at verse 9. How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And what Jesus had in mind there, folks, is is a, a passage like Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, which has the Lord speaking to Israel of the new covenant. And he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit Within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, friends. And of course, this happens to us at the moment of salvation. And now, what does Jesus's baptism in the Holy Spirit mean for us? We recently learned from Titus 3 and verse 5 that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. In other words, it's, it's how the Lord saves you. It's how he regenerates you. 
and renews you. You are born again by his baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. And mind you, this is something, something that Jesus does to you. It's nothing you can do. It's nothing you can produce or, or affect. It is solely his doing. It is indeed the way of salvation. Now, so I don't leave you hanging here about Jesus also baptizing with fire. Back in Matthew 3.11, context is king, right? So if we go back, yes, we're going back. Matthew 3, one last time. Matthew 3. Considering the context here of Matthew 3 and verse 11, which we just looked at. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look at Matthew 12, the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The context here is Judgment. Judgment. And even the context leading into this verse is about judgment. Look at verse 10, which has the Baptist declaring, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, friends, if you're standing on a bridge... I love standing on bridges, especially when there's this beautiful trout stream flowing underneath me. And you look upstream, and it's judgment. And then you look downstream, and the context is judgment. Guess what the water flowing under the bridge is? Judgment. It's the same, right? It's the same. The point here for then and now is that Jesus will baptize those he will save with the Holy Spirit, and he will baptize with fire those he will not save, the fires of judgment. Or, to return to chapter 1 of John's gospel, those who will receive Jesus are saved by his baptism of the Holy Spirit, but those who will not receive him because they reject him, he will baptize with the fires of eternal judgment. We have one last characteristic to consider. That is the Son of God. The Son of God. We see this back in our text of John 1, verse 34. The Baptist wraps up his testimony with another declaration. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John goes from calling Jesus the Word to the light to the one who comes after him to Jesus Christ, the only begotten God, the Lord, the one whom the people do not know, the Lamb of God, the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, to now calling him the Son of God. The significance here is that the Baptist has seen and witnessed, along with many other people, the heavens open and again the Spirit coming down on Jesus and God's verbal acknowledgement that this is his beloved Son 
with whom he is well pleased. And what's interesting about this is that the, the Greek text actually reads, this is the chosen of God. Eclectos, chosen or elected. Writer John may have had Isaiah 42, 1 in mind, which says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. However, because the Baptist is tying this to seeing and witnessing God's acknowledgement that this indeed is his beloved son, as well as the fact that gospel writer John will refer to Jesus multiple times as the son of God throughout his gospel, but he never refers to him as again as the elect or chosen of God. The translators have opted for son of God. Now the phrase son of God truly expresses Jesus's divinity. The fact that he is the unique, divine Son. In Colossians 2.9 we read, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And the Tyndale Bible Dictionary helps us out here to understand Jesus as the Son of God in, in three distinct ways. The first is through His eternal, personal Sonship. This is revealed, for instance, in Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, 16. And in Jesus' identification of himself at his trials, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus replies, I am. In both instances, the issue is his personal being, his essence his eternal identity the second aspect of jesus's sonship comes from his birth you remember back in luke 13 or excuse me luke 1 and verse 35 when the angel replied to mary the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you and for that reason the holy child shall be called the son of god the son of god and the third distinction is what we might call his messianic sonship. Jesus is the Father's Son and representative whose earthly mission is to establish the kingdom of God. As we've already seen, this first happened when at his baptism, God acknowledged Jesus as his beloved Son with whom he is well pleased. A similar acknowledgement will happen at the transfiguration. In Luke 9.35, when Jesus, uh, the Father makes a, a similar declaration about Jesus, his Son. As the Messianic Son, Jesus perfectly completed the redeeming work given to him by his Father. Now friends, Jesus as the Son of God, <laughs> that's the coup de grace. This is... This is the cake and the icing. And it's important for us today because the world tries to make Jesus as anything but the Son of God. And it's only the very Son of God, again, who can offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Him. So we have seen these five immutable truths unchanging truths about Jesus, important truths for, for uh, 
John the Baptist to share back then. And of course it's recorded in scripture for us here today that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that he takes away sin. He is of higher rank in that he has eternally existed. He has been manifested to Israel and consequently to us as well as Gentiles. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit, which is to say he is the one who regenerates and renews and causes somebody to be born again. And he indeed is the the Son of God, the divine, unique Son, fully God in his essence and attributes. Now, loved ones, as we went along, I, I tried to share with you how these five characteristics would apply to us personally. But now I I want to leave you with kind of more of a big picture takeaway, returning to what we said at the beginning. Because the world continues to evolve and change at sometimes breakneck speeds, and we might all agree, often not in the best of ways. Not in the ways that are pleasing to the Lord, certainly, which is to say, according to the word of the Lord. In fact, some of the changes that we see and experience today are just downright scary. And while we, we might be tempted at times to go the way of the world, because frankly, it would just be a whole lot easier. I mean, we're going to encounter less resistance We're not going to have to endure persecution. You know, we might even fall into this trap too of thinking, hey, we'll get these pews filled if we kind of just go the way of the world. And this is where, friends, we must resist. We must resist the temptation to do this. And as I I mentioned, even some churches and Christian ministries will seek to continue to alter and change the doctrine of Jesus Christ, making Jesus into what they want him to be. Or they may choose to avoid the the hard sayings of Jesus and and simply opt for the the warm fuzzies about Jesus. You know, we're going to keep the love and the grace and the mercy But we're going to throw out the truth, sin, discipline, repentance, justice, judgment, hell, consequences. While others out there will just seek to flat out cancel him altogether. Cancel him. Get rid of him. What do we need him for? He's archaic. He didn't even exist, they might say. Friends, Hebrews 13, 8 and 9 is so very clear. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow forever. So do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. The author of Hebrews tells us, friends, we have to hold fast. We have to hold fast at whatever cost. We have to hold fast at all cost to the confession of Jesus Christ, the biblical confession and truthfulness as to who he is. 
And friends, maybe there is, there is somebody out there this morning and, 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 and you're starting to put some of these pieces of the puzzle together. Maybe this is brand new stuff for you. Maybe you've been sitting in the pews here for years and you are just now realizing that you have never repented of your sins and truly put your faith and trust in Jesus. Today is the day of your salvation right here, right now, friends. Right here, right now, I beg of you, I plead of you to believe in the true confession, these immutable truths of Christ Jesus, trusting that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. The Savior is Jesus. He went to the cross on your behalf out of, out of tremendous love for you, and he paid the price that you couldn't pay. His blood was shed for you, and he died in your place for you, but not just that he died and hung there on the cross and went to the grave. He went to the grave, but three days later, he conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan, he conquered hell, all of these. And he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. And, and when you repent and believe, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, then he gives you his Holy Spirit. Yes, he uses his Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again, but then his Holy Spirit will live and dwell in you all the rest of your days. So that, so that you can know that you have salvation so that then you can become conformed into the image of his son friends as we close this morning we're, we're going to pray together I, I would invite you to stand if if you're able if you're not then please stay sitting and we're going to put a prayer up on the screen it's from one of my favorite books arthur bennett's puritan prayer collection called valley of vision we're going to invite our our musicians to go ahead and come on back up here while we are reciting this prayer together and let us read together my father in a world of created changeable things christ and his word alone remain unshaken or to forsake all creatures to rest as a stone on him, the foundation, to abide in him, be borne up by him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, affected them. How sweet it is to be near him, the lamb filled with holy affections. When I sin against thee, I cross thy love, uh, thy will, love, life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation, disunion, distance from thee. But thou hast given me a present, Jesus thy Son, as mediator between thyself and my soul, for only he can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord. If I receive the word, I receive my Lord. O oh Lord, form my heart according to the word. 
according to the image of thy Son, so Christ the Word and His Word will be my strength and comfort. And all God's people said, Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.